verses 12 through 17. Yet even now, Yahweh says, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your garments. So basically, render your hearts in repentance. So you rip your garments to show that you're repenting. So he's telling you to rip your hearts. Don't make a show of your repentance. Literally repent in your heart. Return to Yahweh your God, for he is a merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, boundless and loyal love and punishment. This is the exact phrase that is used in Exodus chapter 32. When Israel is about is sinned against the golden calf, and God says, I have every right to kill you according to the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law says idolatry is punishable by death. You did that, and you agreed to the Mosaic law. You signed it in your blood, and therefore I have every right to kill you, and I am going to kill you. And then Moses says, please forgive them. And God's like, oh, okay. I don't mean to make God sound like that. But the idea is that God is a just God, and he has the right to kill you when you sin, but he's also a merciful God. And he wants to forgive you because he's a forgiving and merciful, compassionate God. We've already talked about this dichotomy. And so if he shows justice, he's not showing mercy. If he shows mercy, he's not showing justice. Either way, something gets violated until the cross. And the idea here is it doesn't take much to have God forgive you. When, when you're asking forgiveness, we, we usually, if you come to me, most of the time, if you've wronged me seriously bad, or you've really done something sinfully evil in my presence, or it's been done in your presence, and somebody's like, I'm sorry, we're not quick to forgive. We're like, mm, you wronged me, you hurt me. I've got a lot of emotions here on this, and I want my pound of flesh, and I don't trust you. And it takes a lot. And even when you finally get to the point where you're like, you're willing to forgive them, it's still going to take a while to overcome those emotions and to truly not treat them differently anymore. Now, the greater the offense, the longer that takes. If genuine forgiveness is there. But with Yahweh, Moses just says, forgive them, and God says, okay. Because even though he does have emotions, his emotions don't get all entangled and muddy everything like it does for humans. Emotions are good. And God has emotions, and our emotions come from us. But that entanglement with reason and logic and justice and all that kind of stuff is not a part of who God is. He can sort things and, and know what is right and, and handle it in the way. And, and we can't control our emotions. He can. And this is why he says, I'm like, like a human who is led and controlled by my emotions. I stick to what I say. And so the ideas you see this all throughout the Bible. David says, I've sinned against you, God. And God says, I've forgiven you, and you will not die. And he doesn't treat David any differently as a result of that. This is that line that Moses says, okay, but these people are so evil and so wicked, they don't even follow me when you're right there with me. So can you make yourself more known to me and show yourself? I want to see your glory. God says, you can't handle this, but I'll give you a little bit of it. So he shines, and right when God is walking by Moses, which is going to make his face shine like the sun, God says this. I am Yahweh your God, and I am a merciful and compassionate God, slow to anger, boundless and loyal love, often relenting with calamity. And he shows, I show forgiveness to the umpteenth generation, but I am not an unjust God who will let sin always go unpunished when people don't repent. And this phrase is quoted a lot of times throughout the Bible. And what's interesting is that what's quoted more often to summarize God's default character 
is his compassion, mercy, and forgiveness, not his justice and wrath. Even though that is just as much who he is as the other, and even though he does demonstrate it, and rightfully so at times, that's not what's repetitively quoted over and over again as a phrase to summarize. Yes, we see God doing that multiple times, judgment and justice and punishment, but it is not a poetic phrase that is quoted over and over and over again to refer to who he is at his core or his default. This is how we are to know him. And this is most ultimately demonstrated in the cross. Verse 14, who knows, perhaps, he will be compassionate and grant reprieve and leave blessing in his wake, a meal offering and drink offering for you to offer to Yahweh your God. So he says, because this is who I am, and this is how I want you to know me first and foremost before all other character traits or attributes that you could list on your Sunday school youth group poster, this is why perhaps if you repent, I will forgive you. There is a point where it's a little too late to repent. We saw that with Israel and Judah. There's a point they passed the point of no return, where no matter what they do, God would not forgive them. So what God is saying is, yet you never know when that point of no return is. And because he so wants to do that more than anything else, then repent. Repent. Because perhaps God will forgive and relent. And that's what David did. David didn't know if God would forgive him, but he repented, and God said, I'll forgive you. And then David's like, well, maybe he'll let my son live too. And so he prayed for it, and God decided, no, he wouldn't. This is what you do. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, announce the holy feast. Gather the people, sanctify the assembly, gather the elders, gather the children and nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out from his bedroom, and the bride from her private quarters. Let the priests who serve Yahweh weep from the vestibule all the way back to the altar. Let them say, have pity, O Yahweh, on your people. Please do not turn over your inheritance to be mocked, to become a proverb among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? Now, this is what's interesting. God says, come, come to the tabernacle. Everybody come to the tabernacle for a feast of repentance, for a celebration of who Yahweh is. Remember, he just got done listing that there are no sacrifices. The land has been so devastated with the locust plague, there's no sacrifices. If this is a literal army that's about ready to come, there's no sacrifices. How do you repent if there's no sacrifices? And the point that God is kind of unintentionally saying is, you don't ultimately need sacrifices in the long run. What you need is your heart. The heart devoted to God is the important thing. Sacrifices was a outward, tangible action, ritual, deed, to make conscious the subconscious repentance. We all know, like, sometimes we'll be like, oh, I'm sorry. And you might really mean it. You're like, oh, I'm sorry that I did that to you. And then you're like, oh, I'm really hungry. Let's go get something to eat, right? I mean, apologies don't last long. And you repent before God, and you're like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? And then your brain begins to wander. You begin to pray about other things and that kind of stuff. Or somebody knocks on the door, and your prayer life comes to an end at that moment. Or like you're asking somebody to forgive you, and they forgive you, and then it kind of gets a little awkward, and you're like, well, let's go do something else. And it doesn't last long. And, and that's not good, because things that we, if we don't invest in it, 
and it's not highly charged with emotions, we tend to not remember them. And they don't tend to implant us, implant in us, in our memory and our being and transform us. Psychologists have shown that the things that truly transform you and implant themselves into you are things that are highly charged with emotions, whether positive or negative emotions, things that last for a long period of time or things that are repetitive over and over and over again. And that's what a ritual does. A ritual is not meant to save you. A ritual is not some dumb thing that we do as a family because we don't know what it means, but it's something that we do to make us focus on the thing that we're thinking about and we put it into action and we infuse it with motions and we repetitively do it so that it doesn't become this fleeting thing in our mind. Because you know how many thoughts are in your mind are so fleeting. I mean, in and out and in and out and in and out in this life. And that's what ritual does. And so, yes, ritual is important. But what God is saying is, ultimately in the end, I just want your hearts. I just want your hearts. See, Israel thought, oh, I'm doing the ritual, so I'm good. And remember in the pre-existing prophecy, like, yeah, but I don't have your heart. I just have the action. The heart is the most important thing. The ritual helps move our heart there. But the ritual is not absolutely necessary all the time. Although that doesn't mean we shouldn't have more rituals in our churches. Then he says, please, please, Yahweh, do not allow us to be a proverb that look, Israel's sin and their lack of repentance and reaping the judgment of God shows there is no Yahweh. Now remember, that's been the complaint. When, when Moses was going before God, he was like, God, 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 don't let the Egyptians say, you're the kind of God who just saves them to kill them. Please forgive them. Not just forgive them because I care about them, and not just because you made promises to them, but forgive them so that your glory as a compassionate, merciful, forgiving God who saves and delivers people will be known throughout all the nations. And then remember when the Assyrians and Babylonians came, they were like, look, your God has abandoned you. And God's like, no, 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 no. A day will come when I will save them in a miraculous way that will prove that I never abandoned them. But you've got to wait 70 years for that. And so this is what he's saying. Please don't let us be a proverb that ruins your reputation. Our sin is about ready to ruin your, our witness of you. So please forgive us and restore us so that that witness isn't forever ruined. And that's the note that he leaves off in that section, in this first section. So what God is looking forward to, well, and he's not looking forward to it. What God is looking to in the future is this judgment that is coming. Now, listen, remember, that judgment is coming no matter what. Whether you repent or not, that judgment is coming. The question is, what side of the sword are you on, so speak? The sword that destroys you and cuts you down, or the sword that delivers you out of the hand of the enemy? That's the question. Judgment day is coming regardless. The question is, what side of the sword are you on? So that brings us to the second division, where Yahweh relents and restores. So now he's going to go into the idea that I will forgive you and I will restore you if you repent. So chapter 2, verses eight, verse 18. Then Yahweh became zealous for his land. He had compassion on his people. So the implication is that they've repented and he forgave them. 
Yahweh responded to his people, Look, I am about to restore your grain, as well as your fresh wine and olive oil. You will be fully satisfied. I will never again make you an object of mockery among the nations. So Yahweh says, I'll restore all the blessings of the land, flowing with milk and honey. But here's what's really interesting. I promise I'll never make you a mockery of the nations ever again. That means that there will be no other judgment day after this particular judgment day. Because they were a mockery among the nations when the Moabites came in and oppressed them in the book of Judges. And then Eglon or Ehud freed them. And then they fell into their sins and became a mockery among the nations again. And then Othniel freed them. And they became a mockery among the nations again. And Barak freed them. Well, not really Barak, Jael. And then they became a mockery among the nations again. And then Gideon freed them. And then became, I mean... And they became a mockery of the nations when the Assyrians came and the Babylonians came and then he brought them back. This has happened over and over and over again. But now he's promising this is the last one. Because remember all these prophets end on this note that ultimately in the end God is going to do something that's going to bring an end to the cyclical patterns that we keep going through as people and as nations. Verse 20, I will remove the one from the north far from you. That, once again, seems to point to an army. An army. They will drive him out to a dry and desolate place. Those in front will be driven eastward into the Dead Sea, and those in back westward into the Mediterranean Sea. Now remember, the raging sea is a symbol of chaos and judgment. So now he's looking at Exodus language, where he takes the army of the enemy into the sea and drowns them. And he's saying, I'm doing the same thing. So he's looking back to that Exodus metaphor. So now he's saying, judgment day came. But you weren't on the side of the Egyptians because you repented. Now you're in the side of ancient Israel who was delivered. And the enemy that I used to attack you is now the Egyptians, metaphorically speaking, being thrown into the sea. His stench will rise up as a foul smell. Indeed, Yahweh has accomplished great things. Do not fear my land. Rejoice and be glad, because Yahweh will accomplish great things. Do not fear wild animals, for the pastures of the wilderness are again green with grass. Indeed, the trees bear fruit, and the fig tree and the vine yield to their fullest. Citizens of Zion, rejoice. Be glad because of what Yahweh your God has done. For he has given to you the early rains as a vindication. He has sent to you the rains, both the early and late rains, as formerly. The threshing floors are full of grain. The vats overflow with fresh wine and the olive oil. I will make up for the years of the... The locusts consumed your crops, and the locusts, and the locusts, and the locusts. My great army that I have sent against you. You will have plenty to eat, and your hunger will be fully satisfied. You will praise the name of Yahweh your God, who has acted wondrously in your behalf. My people will never again be put to shame. You will be convinced that I am in the midst of Israel. I am Yahweh your God, and there is no other people, will, and there is no other. My people will never again be put to shame. That is three times that he's promised that. Now he looks forward to the future. And this is one of the most powerful prophecies of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 28. After all this, I will pour out my spirit on all kinds of people. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your elderly will have relevatory dreams. Your young men will see prophetic visions. Even on male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will produce portents, or judgments, or supernatural cosmic judgments, both in the sky and on the earth. Blood, 
fire and columns of smoke. The sunlight will be turned to darkness, the moon to the color of blood. And before the day of Yahweh comes, that great and terrible day, it will so happen that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who survive, just as Yahweh has promised. The remnant will be those whom Yahweh will call. So he pronounced this day that Yahweh will pour in his spirit. Now we've seen this already. Where in Ezekiel, God, Ezekiel prophesies a day that the Spirit will come on people. And Jeremiah talks about this, where the law will be written on your hearts. And we know that this is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So this is one of the most powerful prophecies of emphasizing the Spirit being poured on all people. Some of your translations just say the Spirit is poured on all people. Others say maybe all kinds of people. The idea is that not all people on the earth are going to get this. This is not an inclusive theology where regardless of whether you repented or not, that God is going to pour out his spirit on everybody. That's not what it's talking about. The context makes it very clear that the repentance is what allows you to escape judgment day and the blessings of God be poured out on you. So not only will you receive the physical blessings because of your repentance, but you're going to receive the spirit blessing because of your repentance. So that's clear that this only belongs to those who repent. The other thing is that he's specifically speaking to the covenant people. And this is made clear by, he says, your sons and daughters will prophesy your elderly. This is speaking to the covenant people. So the only way that they can prophesy and the only way they can have dreams is that the spirit of God is poured out on them. This is, the, this is what prophets do because they have the spirit of Yahweh on them. So this also speaks to the fact that this is only a few. It's only the covenant people who are going to get the spirit. But the idea, though, is that all kinds of people. It used to be, and we talked about this in Jeremiah 31, 31, when he says that you will no longer need anyone to teach you the law. You will all know me because I will write my law on all of your hearts. Because back in the day, only the prophet got the Spirit of God and knew the will of God and got the visions and the dreams. And only the king got the Spirit of God on them and only the priest got the Spirit of God on them. And we talked about this already, but we saw this with Elijah. When the prophet screws up the message of God, everything goes wrong. So Elijah got the message wrong and then he, somebody else, Elisha, had to do it. But then he got it wrong, passed it to the junior varsity prophet, and he didn't quite get it right, and he screwed up. And this rippled effect through Israel for multiple generations through Jehu and his descendants and all that kind of stuff, of when he gets it wrong, there is nobody to fact-check him. Because the prophet is the one who has the Spirit of God. And you don't know what the will of God is except through the prophet. And so when the prophet screws it up, there is no way to know whether he's right or not, and you have to go on it. Because if you disobey the prophet, you're disobeying God. And the only way you know is if God drastically judges the prophet. And so only this certain category of person got it, and only they knew the will of God. But this is saying, all my covenant people, everybody repents. Whether you're an older person, elder, proven yourself, as a leader, or you're a young little girl, you will get it. Female servants will even get it. Now, female servants were the lowliest of low in the ancient way of thinking because they were females and they didn't have no rights as a servant. And the idea is not that all people in the world will get it, but all 
kinds of people and the covenant community of people will get it. All the people that didn't previously get it in the past. Then this will be followed by these cosmic re-altering of the universe. Judgments that will come on the earth and bring these blood, fire, columns of smoke. So this is the day of Yahweh. So the Spirit of God will be poured out. This has been fulfilled. On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, the Holy Spirit is poured out on everybody, and they begin to speak in the languages that everybody understood them. And this is followed by these amazing things that happen in the book of Acts, visions and dreams and, and healings and resurrections that the disciples and other people do. And this is fulfilled. And we know that it was we know this for a fact because when Peter, who was like the guy who never says the right thing, and all of a sudden is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gets up and he says, gives like one of the most amazing sermons that has ever been given by anybody in the Bible, let alone Peter. And he literally quotes this passage and says, Today it's been fulfilled. But what's interesting is he quits right at the end of verse 29 and doesn't go into the judgments. And this is like, lots of scholars are like, oh my goodness, how should we interpret this? What's going on? Peter then goes on though and says in Acts chapter 2 verse 33 that there is a judgment coming if the Jews don't repent and come to Christ. So what's interesting is he seems to be pausing intentionally. And he gives a speech about today is the Spirit of God that God has been talking about. Look at us. We're prophesying and speaking this kind of stuff. And we know the will of God. And you're hearing us in language. And then he quotes Joel. And he stops right at the blessings part. And he doesn't go into the judgment. But then he keeps speaking. And in verse 33, he says, and then he actually reinforces this in verse 38 and 39 as well. He says, Yet, you need to embrace, embrace this. You need to embrace and repent and come to Jesus, the Messiah that you crucified, if you want to receive this blessing. And he warns them of a judgment that is coming if they don't repent. And so Peter seems to be intentionally not quoting the second part of this prophecy because he's saying you have a chance. Just like in Joel chapter 2 in the very beginning where God says you've been devastated and the judgment of God is coming, but if you go to the temple and repent, who knows, maybe God will forgive you. Remember, it's hard for us because when people quote things in the Bible, we're like, oh, it's quoting that verse. But they didn't have verses in the ancient world. So when they quote a verse, they're quoting a verse to trigger your memory the entire context. And so Peter says, we're here again. The Romans are the army that have devastated us. But there is a greater judgment of God that is coming one day that's kind of like the Roman army that is here. And now the Holy Spirit is being poured on you, which is we are now being turned into the temple of God. So flee to the temple like Joel told him to flee to the temple and repent. You flee to the temple, the Holy Spirit that's just coming, making you the temple. And repent. Because if you do, then perhaps maybe God will relent and forgive you and you will receive blessings. And he purposely does not quote that part. So he seems to be very intentional leaving off the last part because there seems to be this pause between the blessings and the judgment, just like there was a pause in Joel chapter 2 when God is calling them, the judgment is about ready to come if you don't repent. Then, in Acts chapter 4, the Jewish leadership blatantly rejects Christ. 
representing the entire nation, they just outwardly reject Christ. And at that point, in chapter 10, God begins to move towards the Gentiles. Jesus also did this in Matthew. In his sermon, um, and in one of his sermons, he talked about a day of judgment that was coming where not one stone on the temple would be left standing. And he told him to flee for the hills and all this kind of stuff. And then in the midst of this, he had just cursed the fig tree because the fig tree wasn't producing fruit. And the fig tree was a symbol of Israel. It was even on some of their flags. And so he saw that the Israel, the metaphor for Israel, was not producing fruit, so he cursed it. And he says, if you don't, can, if you don't come back, this tree is going to stay dead, so to speak. And he talks about this judgment coming. That was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans came in and completely destroyed the temple. And then 135 AD, the Romans came back again and basically killed all the Jews or drove them all out of the promised land. And there wasn't one Jew left in the promised land from 135 AD until the British mandate of 1948 after the World War II when the British allowed them back in. And so what, there's, what Peterson suggests is you've got an opportunity to become the new Jerusalem. But the leadership rejects them in chapter 4, and then in chapter 10, God turns his attention to the Gentiles, and then as he goes to the Gentiles, the Romans come in and just devastate the Jews. And so that seems to be the judgment that is finally fulfilled. So nobody quotes the second part of this, but the second part does happen. Now you're like, well, wait a minute. Did the sun really go out and the moon go blood red and that kind of stuff? No, but remember this is a metaphorical language for the darkness that comes when God brings judgments. It doesn't necessarily always mean to a literal sun going out or a literal moon going red. It could just mean eclipses as well. And eclipses were symbols of doom in the ancient world. Most Americans don't see eclipses as doom, but there are some people who are caught up in horoscopes that still do to this day. So that's the way they see it. So this seems to be the idea that is going on here. Chapter 3, verse 1. For look, in those days and at that time I'll return the exiles to Judah and Jerusalem, and then I will gather all the nations and bring them back to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment against them there. And concerning my people Israel, who are my inheritance, whom they scattered among the nations, that partitioned my land, and they cast lots for my people. They traded a boy for a prostitute. They sold a little girl for wine so they could drink. So the idea is that this is the things that they're doing. And so when he brings them back to the land, he will judge them or he will bless them. Why are you doing these things to me, Tyre and Sidon? Why are you trying to get even with me, land of Philistia? I will very quickly repay you for what you have done. For you look, for you took my silver and my gold and brought my precious valuables to your own palaces. You sold the Judeans and the Jerusalemites to the Greeks, removing them far from their own country. Look, I'm rousing them from that place to which you sold them. I will repay you for what you have done, and I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sebians, nations far away. Indeed, Yahweh has spoken. So not only is he going to judge Israel when that day comes that they don't repent, he's going to judge the surrounding nations. And once again, that's a pattern we keep seeing in the prophets as well. I will do to you what you did to the Israelites. Verse 9, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for holy war. Call out for warriors. Let all these fighting men approach and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am not a warrior. I am to a warrior. 
Lend your aid and come, and all your surrounding nations, gather yourselves to the place. Bring down, O Yahweh, your warriors. Let the nations be roused, and let them go up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for I will sit in judgment on the surrounding nations. Rush forth with the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come stomp the grapes, for the winepress is full. Now this idea of sickling the harvest and stomping the grapes is a symbol of judgment day, destroying the enemy. Indeed, their evil is great. Crowds, great crowds, are in the valley of decision. Of the day of Yahweh is near, the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withhold their brightness. On that day, God will judge. Yahweh roars from Zion, from Jerusalem. His voice bellows out. The heavens and the earth shake. But Yahweh is a refuge for his people. He is a stronghold for citizens of Israel. So these are metaphors of earthquakes and judgments and all this kind of stuff. Verse 17, you will be convinced that I, Yahweh, your God, dwelling in Zion, my mountain, Jerusalem, will be holy, conquering armies with no longer pass through it. On that day, mountains will drip with the sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the dry stream beds of Judah will flow with water. A spring will flow out from the temple of Yahweh and watering the valley of Cassia trees. Egypt will be desolate and Eden will be desolate wilderness because of the violence they did to the people of Judah. In those days the land will shed innocent blood, but Judah will reside securely forever, and Jerusalem will be secure from one generation to the next. I will avenge their blood, which I have not previously acquired. Acquitted. It is Yahweh who dwells in Zion. So once again, there's this image of all the nations will be destroyed, but anyone from the nations can come into this new Jerusalem. And the idea is the day of judgment is coming. And everybody who repents will be found in this walled, holy, sinless Garden of Eden, New Jerusalem. And that New Jerusalem will be as big as it needs to be in order to contain all the people that repent and come into it. But those who are found outside the city walls are the ones who did not repent, and they will be judged and destroyed. And that's the imagery that is painted here. And this is the exact imagery that the book of Revelation picks up on. So this is the book of Joel. 